Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another version of uh, Bill Roden on Sports here in beautiful studios high atop, uh, you know, Manhattan, Midtown, here with uh, the great Jamal Murphy. Jamal, what's up? Same old, same old. I'm here. Uh, like you said, high atop somewhere in, in Midtown. <laughs> That's right. Well, Sound, we, sounds good. I guess if we have windows, we can figure out. We're actually in a cave, to be okay. honest. Okay. They said, well, wait a minute. What should we believe? It's like fake news. Are you either high atop or are you in a cave? You got to figure it can out you yourself. Both? Figure it out yourself. That's right. Yeah. Now, anyway, listen, um, our guest uh, is a really good friend, good friend, uh, making a second appearance. You know, Thomas, uh, this time last year, October 4th, I looked at it, we did our podcast at uh, uh, MetLife, MetLife Stadium. MetLife Stadium. MetLife Stadium. Yes. And uh, you actually teased it. Anyway, so our guest is, uh, for, for a, uh, is a uh, second appearance, is the great Thomas George. He's an SB Nation national columnist, and he's been a columnist and writer at the Detroit. At, this is such a long list, man, but that's, you know, when you get at the Detroit Free Press, the New York Times, where we are colleagues for 17 years, at the Denver Post, AOL, NFL.com, the NFL Magazine, and he was the NFL Network's first managing editor, but now he has come out with his third book, but his first NFL-centered book, uh, a, a great book, by the way, a great book uh, called Blitz, Why NFL Teams Gamble on Starting Rookie Quarterbacks. It's a great idea. But anyway, Thomas George, welcome to the show again. Hey, it's great to be here. Great to see you, Jamal. Good to see you. In this case. So let's get right into it, man. This is really a great read. It's really a great read. Thank man. you, Bill. Um, so how did you, I was listening actually to our, our podcast last year this time when you were talking about it and um but how did you come up with this this particular idea about specifically why nfl teams gamble on starting rookie quarterbacks and i do want to say you've been covering the nfl for almost what like 20 something years 25 uh, 30? almost 30 30 years yeah. yeah so so why this idea um very interesting in the fact that when you look at that 30 years of coverage and you look at a common thread that seems to have run throughout that time is the uh, issue, the perplexing problem, this, this dynamic, this puzzle of trying to find and identify the franchise quarterback. And, you know, it can come um, in different ways, maybe through trade, um, but almost often through the draft. And so the, the swings and misses and then the uh, – uh, Achilles Smith, mm -hmm. uh, David Cars, you know uh, mm -hmm. Ryan Leaf, mm -hmm. uh, he Schulers, the swing and misses, and then the swings where you just accidentally connect Dak Prescott, right. Jamal, you know something about that, <laughs> yeah. uh, Tom Brady, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Bart Starr, Bart Starr, mm -hmm. and then and then the and then the guys where it looks like they're the real deal, and then they are Peyton Manning. Um, uh, you you look at the whole uh, the whole issue of trying to solve it and the different ways different teams have gone about trying to solve it. I just thought it would make a, a fascinating look uh, historically and current on this subject. Well, when when did it change? I mean, you asked the question, 
why NFL teams gamble on starting rookie quarterbacks, but we both lived in a thing where it was completely the opposite. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure when you first start covering the mm-hmm. league or watching the NFL, what I did, it was a whole different thing. You stand in line, mm-hmm. you know, you wait your turn, you know, uh, they sat ch- chapter on verse on this. When did this change? Did, did it change with Elway? When did this whole thing change and, and why? I think part of the, there are a couple of things that, that became huge factors in that. And, and, and the, the, one of the biggest is free agency. I think free agency put you on the clock as a franchise, as a team where you didn't have that luxury anymore of I own you, I own your right, you mm. aren't going anywhere unless I say so. Mm. And so therefore we can uh, have you sit, watch, learn, groom you, uh, and it will be three or four years. It's understood before you even play, if then. Uh, and so uh, with free agency and the salary cap, there, there came constraints on how long you're going to be able to hold players' rights without a cost. Um, the Patriots are about to experience that with Jimmy Garoppolo. He's mm-hmm. been sitting there for a while now, and he is not going to be sitting there forever right. without getting paid because the cost will be too great and free agency will kick in at some point for him. So I think free agency and the salary cap uh, created a situation where now you're on the clock with this young talent and you're only going to have it for, for, for so long. And then the question comes, am I going to uh, play him uh, right away mm. or, or as quickly as possible, or am I going to groom him for someone else to reap the benefits when he becomes a free agent? Mm. There's also the pressure of uh, losing and the pressure of having an identity and the pressure of, of uh, your franchise being relevant. And when you're a struggling franchise, there's no quicker fix, or at least for the moment, right. than turning into that card of the franchise quarterback, here's a, the, a, the new toy, it ignites the fan base, it ignites ownership. Look at the Chicago Bears. Right, right. They the just three said, teams, right? The, the, right. the Bears, right. Uh, the Eagles, and um, uh, well, Houston. Houston. Yeah, Houston. But the Bears stand out because they went into this season uh, confident and and certain that Mike Glennon was going to be their starter and right. and uh, Trubisky was going to How could you be wait, certain of that? Watch and all of that. <laughs> and here we go, four games in, five games in, mm-hmm. and on a Monday night, Mitchell Trubisky Turn. comes in because the fire under a franchise, particularly one like Chicago, is such that uh, something has to give. The pressure to be relevant makes you turn to that franchise guy. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to making your franchise relevant by going to a rookie quarterback, it almost sounds like a gimmick a lot of times. Um, you know, it happens so much. Is I mean, is that yeah. is that one way to look at it? Yeah, I, I think it definitely is. I mean, sometimes it's a stopgap measure until you figure out what else to do, mm-hmm. until you can pick another one and start the cycle all over again. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it's also the pressure that the coach feels because – a coach, John Fox in this instance, is under a lot of pressure to win. They haven't won there. And not just him, but all coaches around, they ask themselves the question, am I going to let this guy sit and not take a chance that he could be the next Elway or he could be uh, the next Brady or he could save our season? Or am I going to groom him for next year? Or am I actually grooming him for whoever's taking over for me next year because I'm going to get fired? Right. right yeah, <laughs> so right. I'm going to roll him out there and roll right. the dice with this right. and see, you know, not only if he can do it, but also see if I can save my job. 
does it does it also buy you time? If I'm a coach and I decide to go with the rookie quarterback, does that buy me time because now I have an excuse of why I'm not winning games? That's a great point. You know, I think it's all an individual and specific situation because in Jeff Fisher's instance last year with the Rams, Jeff decided that he was going to wait on playing uh, Jerry Goff and uh, that he wasn't ready. And a lot of people didn't like uh, the fact that uh, Case Keenum, who was his guy, uh, they felt could be no, you know, uh, that going to golf could be no worse than what they were dealing with. And Jeff waited and waited and waited, and then he put him in, and then he ended up lasting two, you know, or three games before he was fired. So sometimes, and then some people thought, well, and Jeff addresses this in the book, some people thought, well, Jeff is purposely holding him out because he can get through this season and no matter what happens and can say, look, I haven't even played my rookie quarter, my franchise quarterback yet. We've gri- we've groomed him all for – we're all on the same page here, dude. Right. And Jeff has said that – you know, says in the book that isn't the case, but there are a lot of people in the league who think otherwise. Mm-hmm. You got some great interviews. I mean, the reporting in the book was great. Because, you know, the first thing we do – Music quotes. You say, "Wow, who, wow!" He got. He, I mean, you got some. You got some great quotes, man. You got some great you interviews. Got, you got Gruden, the quarterback guru. Guru. You got. You got. <laughs> I mean, you got uh, um, uh, Shanahan, Bo Shanahan, mm-hmm. which I will. I, I want to get to that in, in a minute because I'm. We probably see the, uh, but you did uh, RG, RG three. Did you get RG three? I mean, I saw you got him from the from a press conference, but I was wondering what he thinks was. You know, well, we might as well get into it. Now, I had another question, but, I, but since we're on RG3, I want to know the real story behind RG3 because I felt, and it goes into this, that that I thought Shanahan kind of ruined him, but also RG kind of ruined himself. But what, what you, I mean, you've seen this for a long time. What, where do you fall on on who ruined who? I had a chance to, to uh, work with RG3 from uh, – the time he was drafted throughout his tenure in the league and uh, met him, I think, for the first time at the Combine um, the year he came out. And I remember the early conversations about him and particularly one I had with Mike Shanahan about him uh, when the Redskins drafted and they were talking about uh, his family and the way he was raised and the fact that he comes from a military family right. and that you're just not going to find a finer guy. It's really interesting in life how sometimes your strengths can become your weaknesses. Because I think as he, uh, as RG3 developed, he he took on this sort of military approach mm. and viewpoint where um, he knew as much as the next guy and he was ready for some things when he wasn't. Mm. And that his opinion uh, not only mattered, but should come first. I think all of those things really started to create a situation down there that became toxic. You had a situation where the owner had developed a very close relationship with the quarterback, and then and the quarterback uh, embraced that relationship, and in that locker room and on that coaching staff, that was a problem, as it would be with any locker room and any coaching staff when one of 53 is treated in a manner um, that clearly – is different from the rest of the team. Most quarterbacks are, right? but you can't be so obvious about it to the point it was down there. All of those things created some some friction and problems. I think it came down to a football standpoint from the coaching staff, and even RG3 has in some ways uh, admitted this, uh, that he came into the league and they started using some of the principles that he used at Baylor. It was a read option sort of 
offense with him running. They wanted him to slide more. He never would. Uh, he, for some reason, you yeah. know, was heroic about it. And to that point, and uh, as the season went on and as the year went on and as he got hurt, they, they told him, though, you, we know you want to be a pocket passer. We want you to be one too. But that's going to take time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to run this. So after his first year and after the injury and all that, RG3 was on a different track. I'm ready to do that now. Uh, this is what we're going to do. Drew up a few plays. Mm. My understanding was in turn him in that he's not going to run anymore. Mm. Uh, okay. And let it be known that, the, you know, this was sort of the way it was going to be. And so as they started to go on the fast track in an area that he wasn't really ready for, things began to break down and problems began to arise. And some of those same kind of issues, I think, followed him on forward. And what about the – I mean, I think the, the watershed moment was that was it Monday Night Football was a playoff game where it was all – you know, he had gotten hurt against the Ravens the week before, and it was terrible. I mean, it was I think it was against uh, who? Seattle. I believe Seattle, it and, mm-hmm. and it was just awful. And he's mm-hmm. basically limping. It was it was an awful spectacle. And I was wondering whose fault was that? Was it was it his fault for not coming out? Was it Shanahan's fault for not saying, "Listen, you're not playing." Mm-hmm. You know, let's look at the big picture here. You're not playing. I don't care what you do. Whose fault was that? I think the onus of that falls on the coach. I think it's always the coach's decision to to really step in and make the adult decision, the big picture decision. However, you've got some factors going over there that make it really, really unusual. It's the playoffs. Mm-hmm. It's your quarterback. You know, it's, it's win or go home. And oftentimes in those type of situations, if you can walk, you're going to play. So the coach is asking the quarterback, can you play? And the quarterback is saying, not only can I play, I'm not coming out. Right. You know what I'm saying? And that's what you want to hear as a coach, but you also have to go with what you see, as you were yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think the onus falls on the coach, but I do, will give it this caveat that it was the playoffs, and the quarterback is telling the coach, I can do it. I can manage. You know, I can do it. And so all of those factors, I think, uh, went into that you know, being yeah. what it was. But I, I, as a coach, I would have taken it out. Yeah, it's funny, too. You mentioned we'll move on from it. Wentz, you, you, you write this story in the bench where, where uh, Lori wanted Wentz to come up to the uh, press box. There was, a, there was a concert, and he wanted uh, all the quarterbacks, I think Wentz, um, uh, the other kid from Oklahoma, uh, um, to come up. Uh, at any rate, Wentz declined. He said, I don't think I've earned it. I, I don't want that. And that's the first thing – popped into my mind was R.G., who, as you said, totally embraced that. <laughs> oh, no, no, I will come, as a matter of fact. I'll be right there. You know, and it, it, and it, it, it prompted our good friend uh, Rob Parker to call, to call uh, he called, uh, famously called R.G. 3, a, a, what do you call him, a, um, you're that uh, cornball, cornball brother. You're a cornball brother, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. Um, so, so, but again, you talk about the humility and, and, uh, you know that kind of thing. That was definitely not uh, RG three. What do you think now? When we talk about blue, what do you think about Wentz right now? Are you, we in the past two two seasons? We've got three laboratory people you know, uh, examples of why teams gamble on starting rookie quarterback. You got Dak last year, this which, year, which was yeah. forced a little. The Dak one. It had, well, yeah. It, yeah. Well, they weren't wasn't like an option. Right. Where where Wentz was basically an option, and Watson. Was an option, and golf. right? And 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 golf was sort of an option. Which of those four 
is more it was surprised you has surprised you most between uh, uh Wentz, Wentz Dak Deshaun and Goff um I would have to say Dak I did not I saw Wentz uh the tape the interviews uh the combine the coaching uh the, the the feedback I got on him, I, I really saw a big, strong, uh, tough, smart guy who I thought would succeed. Uh, Deshaun Watson, I mean, his coach told you, uh, you're going to regret uh, Dabo Sweetie. You're going to regret not draft, drafting him. He's like Michael Jordan. Mm. Nobody believed it, but maybe they're starting to see some of that, even though we're very early on. Um, golf is just now – coming back from a horrific first year. I mean, it was really tough on him, and there's a lot of people in this book who say they still don't believe in him, and uh, Dick Vermeil yeah, yeah, yeah. also yeah. in there says, uh, I don't see a number one number one there, and a lot of people that I know a lot about quarterback have said the same. Even even now? Uh, but that, no, that was before oh, the season. Oh, yeah. So now, mm-hmm. now you know, we're seeing Sean McVay as a miracle worker after all. <laughs> uh, we'll yeah, get to that yeah. also, but... But uh, Dak uh, Prescott is the one. I mean, you, when you look at what he accomplished last year and 13-3 and three and winning the division and where he was drafted and what he did um, uh, in college, uh, Mississippi State, uh, uh, there, was no, there was no look that said that he could be that good. I mean, there was indications that said that he had a chance. Uh, but he's risen beyond uh, having a chance. I think he's solidified himself as a really uh, essential leader. He's done all the things right that we're talking about off the field. Scott Linehan talks extensively about it, Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones in this book, about uh, his makeup and his attitude and Jason Garrett as well, how he carries himself uh, not only amongst the team but amongst others. And uh, and then translate that to his performance on the field. I don't think anybody could have seen Dak Prescott doing what he has done. Which also brings us back to one of the points I make in the book, and that is for everyone looking for the Jets, Cleveland, mm-hmm. everyone who's for so long been so down looking for this franchise quarterback, they need to look at everything that happened with Dak Prescott and study it from beginning to end, and 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 look at that template on how you identify the guy who is your guy as so, that franchise so, guy. So what are some of the things in that template? Like what what is it that, that makes Dak successful and that, that you think that he will continue right. to be successful? So what's it, what is it about him that, you know, That's next year, draft time right. comes, what does he have that we look for? Well, I think one of the first things is confidence. They want to know that you have the confidence in your ability. And there's, of course, a great deal of difference between confidence and arrogance. But that level of confidence, toughness, uh, playing quarterback in the NFL is all about getting knocked down to get up again, to get knocked down again, to get up again. And can you get up again? Can mm-hmm. you get up again after uh, the blitz and you've just been you know, socked in the mouth and you may need a couple of stitches and, and play mm-hmm. and without blinking? Uh, can you get up again after you've thrown four picks in right, a game right. and you're playing the number one defense the next week uh, – uh, at Denver or Seattle or wherever on the road. So there's the toughness, you know, and then there's also the intelligence. Um, and that's a tr- tricky word when it comes to quarterbacking because with intelligence comes in a lot of different ways and is viewed in a lot of different ways. But um, 
learning the offense and being able to execute the offense and knowing all the nuances of it and being able to put in the time and having the work ethic, work ethic to get that accomplished. Critical component uh, to that. Um, and then uh, Dak shows something that Dick Vermeil talks about in this book, uh, which I think is one of the things that resonated the most with me. And Dick is saying, um, says that the military is spending millions mm-hmm. and millions and millions of dollars trying to identify who is the bravest among them. They know at the end who gets the Purple Heart, but their goal is to identify coming into the room with the 600 recruits. That's the guy who's going to win the Purple Heart mm-hmm. and put that guy right out front in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so he says there's really something to that, and I agree with him, in that process in trying to find your franchise quarterback. And as you look at these group of young quarterbacks who are going to be very high in the draft. The top three picks next year in the draft could be quarterbacks. Mm. Uh, Rosen and Arnold, uh, Rosen at US, UCLA mm. and Arnold at USC and others. When you look at this group, you, you, you're trying to identify who is the guy amongst those who has all those traits we're talking about, but then also has that leadership ability, that intangible that you just can't necessarily put your finger on but you you can you can sense it in other ways and how do we identify that that's the key yeah Dak Prescott has all of those he checks all of those boxes uh, our guest is uh great Thomas George he's the uh SB Nation national columnist and the author of a great book called Blitz why NFL teams gamble on starting rookie quarterbacks um you know, you, you, you talk about Deshaun. I think that is, is that game, I think it was a Monday night game, that it was kind of his coming out thing where, remember, there was the one play where he just got completely blasted. They were playing Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And he got completely rocked. And everybody was like, oh, well, welcome to him. And then before we could even stop, dinner, he ran for, I think, like a 70-something yard mm-hmm. touchdown. And, you know, everybody, including me, I was like, for some reason you're cheering for this, this guy. I, right. I, I don't know. Right. Know why, but you know, again, that's sort of that it factor. Right. Dak Prescott now seems like a wince because you know, you, mm-hmm. I, I guess we get jaded and we're kind of waiting for it to mm-hmm. waiting for it to be over. Mm-hmm. But then week after week, these guys just perform. Yeah, before you get to wince, just what you said about Deshaun Watson. Mm-hmm. Met him at the uh, draft this year um, at, a, at a draft event, and then at a couple of press conferences. You just sense with Deshaun Watson. I mean, you you get in his presence and you know that there's nothing average about him. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing normal about him. I mean, he just exudes a type of calming confidence about himself. Dak has that. Mm-hmm. Deshaun Watson really has it in abundance. And and uh, and his his you know how people miss that. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. How they missed his performance in the national championship game on the biggest stage there is, I don't get. You know, how a team like Cleveland can pass on him with the right. dire need that they have, right. you know, it's really just you so know, baffling. Should, you almost should fire everybody in the room. <laughs> yeah. Whoever, you gotta call everybody, whoever's in the room, you're fired. Right. That, look, we need a take charge owner to do yeah. it. But, you know, all those traits that you mentioned, I didn't hear arm strength, I didn't hear footwork, you know. So, I mean, I guess they all have that to a certain extent. If you're successful in college, you're doing something right. You have the, you probably have the physical skills, um, but it seems like still teams are, are, you know, they're trying to nitpick who has the better footwork, who has the better, you know, arm strength in the combine. You know, I'm looking at like a guy like Trubisky, who I just couldn't understand 
could jump so high in the draft to be you know a top five guy and you let Watson slide you just mentioned we saw Watson in the championship game we saw how he is in big games you let that go and you take a guy and hey he might you know he might turn out to be a good player I don't know but I just couldn't couldn't understand how he would go before Watson um, when he you know he we saw him at North Carolina and they, that team was nothing special so mm-hmm. you know what was it's I really, missing? It's really amazing because there's 32 teams with 32 different owners, with 32 different general managers, and 32 different scouting departments, and everybody sees things differently, and everybody thinks they're right until right. they aren't. Right. And and it's very clear at the end that quite a few of them aren't. You right. know, but but they all live in their own vacuum and cocoon right. of this is what we do and this is what we believe and this is how we do things and uh, and, uh, and that's why you have some of the turnover that you have because uh, a lot of times it's proven that they're just not up to snuff. To, to that point, again, like I said, one of the things that's great about this book is just the reporting, which of course I understand because that's what you've made your career doing, just the mm-hmm. reporting. But there's one number, you, you were making the point about the value of a franchise quarterback. <laughs> this is a great number. You said 75 NFL head coaches who were with their teams for four or fewer years were fired or forced to resign from 1998 through 2016. Of those 75 coaches, 22 were fired after two seasons and 11 were fired after one season. Those 75 coaches worked with only 18 Pro Bowl quarterbacks. Nine of those 18 quarterbacks made the Pro Bowl only once in their careers. 24 of these coaches started rookie quarterbacks in eight or more games. And to me, that's that pair. I mean, that sums up why you need to get this guy. You got to get this guy. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think they're exceptionally the the Ravens team that had uh, uh, who was quarterback where they went to the Super Bowl. Dilford. Dilford. Dilford, Who he was fans for too. You know, uh, but that to me that was kind of an outlier. But I mean, as you you set out throughout the book you got to have this it's a holy grail you got to mm-hmm. find this guy or die trying mm-hmm. and and you can't be afraid to admit you're wrong and start over mm-hmm. tony dungy talks about this and some others do in the book as well as it's a swing and miss inexact science and 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 you try to get it as right as you can and some are better at it than others but don't stick too long going down a road that yeah. you know is right jay Blow it up and go get another one. Right. So, and right, and right. blow it up and go get another one. And right. you keep going until you find that guy. So so in that, so in that vein, do you think, you know, the you know you talk about stardom and sitem, you know what to do that first year, uh, in the book. Um, so in your opinion, you know what's what's the best thing to do? Is it best to stardom right away and see what you got mm-hmm. as fast as possible? So if you make a mistake, start over. That's a great question, Jamal. And and. There is a lot of time devoted to, in this book to that with the, the classic examples of last year, the one and two picks, Jerry Goff set, Carson Wentz started, and the different philosophies there. I personally believe that the absolute best route is that he sits behind a veteran winning Super Bowl quarterback. You don't always have the Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre scenario, but that's the ideal one to right, have. Right. Because then he's learning behind not just a quarterback, but a Super Bowl winning quarterback, all of the intricacies uh, that it takes to be great. That's the ideal. Since you don't have that in most situations, or if you don't even have a guy who's a winning 
veteran quarterback, let alone a Super Bowl winning quarterback, then I think you have to play them uh, as soon as you can. Because you don't learn, to me, um, in the classroom and in practices like you learn in games. There's just no substitute for the actual play. So if your line is good enough where you can protect him, and even if it isn't, get him on the move, um, my idea is to play them and, and, and protect them as much as you can, but let them get that game experience. So who... So, to that end, and we're going to take a break in a minute, but uh, I, I want to get into Kaepernick, too, as a football player and the whole flash in the panel there. But, but so, who's sitting behind Rivers and who's <laughs> sitting behind Breeze? Because that, you know, because I, I thought about it and read the bus. Okay, or so. Eli. Or Eli. Yeah. Or Eli. Yeah, because yeah. that, you know, I say, okay, who, who are our longest, because that does go back to those. And I thought, okay, who's sitting, who's, who's Rivers' backup? Who's Breeze's backup? And you're right, who's, um, who Eli the hell is Eli back? Gino. Oh, well, well we read, who's his back? Come on, Tom. We read that book. <laughs> come on, Tom. <laughs> but but say who who yeah, is, who's yeah. River who's who's Rivers back up? Well, I tell you, you know, I talked to their staff and to their their uh, GMs and to others in that building. They really thought hard about drafting a quarterback over there this year. They're definitely going to draft one next year. I think they realize that most of the quarterbacks in that period and from that time, it's just about done. Eli, Ben, Rivers, all oh, close that's right there. Ben. Who's Ben's backup? Um, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but, that's, but that's an interesting thing, too. I mean, you, these these quarterbacks, uh, the great ones, Breeze and Ben and all these guys, you very rarely see a team, you know, when they get towards the end of their career – draft one of the top quarterbacks and is you know is it that they don't want to offend the quarterback right. they don't yeah. want to they don't want to scare him you know what they have that much respect for the quarterback that we're not even going we're not going to make our team better yeah i think they tend to think well we got that position solved let's spend our money elsewhere and we're not going to with with the cap issues let's just right. get as many right. weapons as we can around them to win but there again is why the patriots are somewhat ahead of the curve because they invested in right. this young man garoppolo and he by all accounts, you know, and what we've seen of him has shown high caliber ability. And so whenever that does happen there, they got a situation where they're either going to get great value out of him if they move him or if he's ready to step in for Brady and they're able to maintain that for as long as they can until he plays. So most teams don't approach it that way. Most teams leave that cupboard bare, and then when it's time to replace him, they go out and do. Because you, you, you mentioned, I mean, even with, with Brady, I mean, it was uh... – Kind of dumb luck. It, well, not luck. I mean, Brady was what, like one ninety nine. Yes, six I think. round. Right. And uh, and I always thought I, I thought that he was the Bart Star when I grew up. It was Bart Star, and I always thought that Brady was the Bart Star of this generation. And it turns out, as you point out, Bart Star was like the two hundredth mm-hmm. player drafted. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, even going back to Johnny Unitas, you know, it, I mean. It's footwork, you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> you know, nobody knew about this guy. You know, he was playing in the Sandlot League or something. So, you know, like you were saying, at some point, um, it's sort of an inexact, uh, this is inexact science, but you better get it right, right. or you're not going to be around for long. Um, our guest is Thomas George, author of Blitzed, Why Teams, NFL Teams Gamble on Starting Rookie Quarterbacks. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to ask you about um, Colin Kaepernick, on the field and, and, and off the field. Uh, but uh, 
Jamal's going to take us to an appropriate break. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible has, has over 180,000 book titles to choose from on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, and MP3 player. For you, the listeners of the Bill Roden on Sports podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out the service. We highly recommend that you check out the classic $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete by the one and only William C. Roden. Is he here? Somewhere? It's me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, an absolute must-read, particularly in these days and times. To download your free audiobook today, go to audio, go to audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports for your free audiobook. Good job. Well, and, and, and apropos of that, uh, I've got a uh, the audio the audio book just came out last week. So uh, what is it? As, a, as for being a guest on the show, uh-huh. Thomas George, we're gonna we'll present you with a copy uh, uh, of the, the audio uh, audible book uh, audio book of Forty Million Dollar Slave, narrated by the author. Wonderful. Which, which we, you should try that. I think we yeah. do. It's a beautiful cover. It's a great book. I've already read it. Now I'm going to listen to it. That's right. <laughs> so that'll be fantastic. And you get to and, and thank you. Yeah, no, it's our pleasure. And definitely, man. obviously, blitzed. Blitzed. Why NFL teams gamble on starting rookie quarterbacks by our guest Thomas George. Another must read. You got to read it. Now, let, let's talk about flash in the pan. I mean, what's your what's your how long do you give somebody? I mean, before. We um, we tell that they're just flashes in the pan, is it? Because we're still talking about Dak, but it's, you know he's in the second year. Uh, Wentz obviously hasn't even finished. Yeah, all these guys. You know, all these guys. So, mm-hmm. what's your um, what's your uh, your own formula for when you consider somebody beyond the flash in the pan status? I think in many instances it's a case by case study because you just trust your eyes and you trust the results, but. Um, I think a, I think a, a couple of years is fair. I, I think a solid year like Dak had is more than fair. Uh, you know, you'd like to you'd like to have three years to really really have a, a good solid picture. But um, you know, I, I think a fair assessment can be made after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. What, what about Kaepernick? Um, what's your evaluation of him as a quarterback? I mean, was he a flash in the pan? Because I mean, we, we'll get to this activism now. I mean, because mm-hmm. reality is, if he doesn't throw another pass, he's mm-hmm. done more to <laughs> advance the cause of social justice, mm-hmm. and and that, that anybody's right playing in the NFL. But as a football player, you know, as a quarterback, what, what's your assessment of him? Well, there's no question that um, when you go around this league and you look at quarterbacks and the systems that they're in, that there often is a marriage of the two that really helps to elevate and put the quarterback on another level. I have no doubt that Drew Brees, had he not been with Sean Payton in that system and used the way he is used with Payton's pass-first philosophy and sort of up-tempo offense, I have no doubt, no doubt in my mind that had Drew Brees been somewhere else, he would not have had the prolific numbers that he has. Um, I wonder if Joe Montana, had he not been with Bill Walsh and the connection of those two guys, um, uh, how it just put them on another level, Walsh's uh, brilliance and creativity, 
and Montana's uh, ability to execute that um, to the highest levels. So what we saw from Kaepernick early in his career was in conjunction with Jim Harbaugh. Mm. And Jim Harbaugh embraced his talents rather than looking at any of his deficiencies and weaknesses because they all have them. Right. They all have things they don't do well. And and uh, and so he had a coach who had the foresight and the creativity and the wisdom to maximize his talents in a way that led them to the Super Bowl um, and to a lot of success out there. And that sort of since then, he's sort of been, as a player, sort of waffling in and out of, you know, different systems, asked to do different kinds of things that aren't really in his wheelhouse per se. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with some of what happened to him after that. Although, uh, last year, he threw pass rate, it was over 90. Right. On a terrible On team. a horrible team. Right. Terrible. You know, and his touchdown interception ratio was really quite productive. Right. You know, as well. I've always liked the player. I've always liked his size. I've always liked his arm. I've always liked his arm strength. You like his fraternity too. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I like that. Both Kappas, two Kappas. There you yeah. go. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know, it's just uh, you know when you hear people talk about him as a football player and want to say that he can't play or that he's you know he's not if there's just no truth to that that right. that really is part of a fog and right. smoke screen to get to wherever else they want to go right and, yeah. I, and you hear you hear even foot you know our football people supposed football people talking about you know before the season started he's no he's no longer a starter and then I'm looking at teams and and they're like at least 10 guys you know, we yeah. mentioned them over. You, you did a great analysis. Of like, I mean, it was like 10, easily 8 to 10 guys. That there's not even a question about whether he's better or more accomplished than, uh, you know. I mean, you know, and I, I'm not even including, you know, like Alex Smith, who he already beat out, you know, right. <laughs> earlier mm -hmm. in his career. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, to me, it's a complete joke when, when they bring the football aspect of it into it and say that he can't play. Mm -hmm. We're going to play a clip uh, from the interview we had last year when – the protest was kind of just, well the, the kneeling was just kind of beginning where you didn't have this whole he was really out there by himself and maybe one other player it wasn't like what we got now where everybody kneeling standing uh locking arms uh you know he was by himself and you made a um a, a comment that will play that really uh was, was uh, prophetic in a way and you said that this was sort of just the beginning of it we'll listen to the the comment what do you make of um, uh, of, of Colin Kaepernick and, the, and and I guess the movement that created? Um, yeah, just just what are some I'm of the excited uh, and I'm happy that we're even having the conversation now. For so long in this league, uh, it was very much a Michael Jordan type effect: hands off, back up. You know, we're the number one league. This is football. Don't do anything to distract uh, the other fifty three. You know, stay regimented, and you didn't have. Um, players in numbers taking a stance for pretty much anything other than their contracts right. and other than, you know, their attempts to win Super Bowls. So th there's been a question for a long time, uh, and Jim Brown has led that question uh, for some time. When are some of these young 
particularly African-American men, but really all the players in the NFL, when they're going to start to have a level of activism, when they're going to start to have a level of involvement, and when they're going to stop being so self-centered and safe and stand up for justice and what's right. And you have to really give Colin Kaepernick a great deal of credit. I think history will show that he will stand right along with uh, Carlos and, mm. and, and, and Ma Ali and many others who took a controversial road on the way to a critical road of enlightenment. Uh, so so I, I don't think there can be enough involvement by these players. I don't think there can be enough statements. Um, and I think we're really just at the cusp of it, Bill. I think it's going to – because it's, it's, it's affected young men in college and it's affected young men in high school, and they're all sort of beginning to pay attention a little more and be a little more aware, and that's a great thing. So you said that, and, and actually you were really prophetic – what do you think now of, of the movement that, that he's created? Um, you know, it takes time. Um, I'll start with this idea that it takes time um, and it takes distance and it takes perspective to really appreciate, I think, the sacrifice and the leadership of someone who does something iconic. And I think that what Colin Kaepernick has done is iconic. Um, I think history will look back on um, his willingness to step forward boldly um, in a manner that will put him uh, on the greatest plateau, particularly of sports figures, um, um, uh, standing for a cause, a social justice in particular here. Um, uh, I, I just... I don't think that we are, we're so much in it now that we can't really, many right. of us can't even appreciate right. uh, what he has done and where he stands. That's how I view about I view that in particular. Um, and, you know, I think we're in this struggle of the, the reasons why he stood um, and the people who don't uh, believe in it or aren't interested in it or don't want to hear about it or don't want to get involved in it. Uh, who want to close a blind eye to it, um, then they're going to move and shift the conversation to a lot of different things. And, of course, that's that's happened quite a bit, too. I think we're in this muddled, still muddled area where the league is, uh, for example, uh, wants to support the players in their ideas and wants to uh, uh, be uh uh, brothers with them on that and and yet we hear today uh, some of the feedback saying a lot of that has just been lip service there hasn't been much action that has gone along with that um, I think it's going to still take some time but I think as long as the dramas continue to, to be beat in a variety of different ways we can get there Do you think he'll play again and in and, and, and the reporting for, for your book did his name come up? Did he? Did he? Well, I know you actually talked about. Did, did his name come up in the context of him playing again? It really didn't much, uh, and and I think a lot of that was by design on their parts. Um, uh, I don't think they wanted to go there, uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, for my purposes in this book, uh, I didn't go there as much as I would have liked. Uh, and will do in the future and have done 
uh, in, in my columns and in my work uh, on a uh, daily, monthly, weekly basis covering the league. Mm-hmm. I think that there is the possibility that he will play in time. I do think that next year um, there can be enough for this league and maybe for some fans time and distance. Michael Vick played again. That's right. You know, uh, uh, there have been others who've gone through some uh, some uh, and, and totally different circumstances, as we know. But there have been others who have been sort of ostracized for the by the league who have gotten uh, another chance. And while uh, I think most teams this year just look at it as too hot button an issue right. to take right. in time for next year, I think it, 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 it will be all right. It's, a, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that uh, you know, it's too early to tell. We're in the, we're in the middle of it. Uh, how history will look at him, and and you saying that just makes me think. You know, the, the owner's reaction. They might have, you know, in, as far as history goes, they might have fell into the trap and actually helped the whole movement. Mm-hmm. You know, their reaction not signing him. They actually got more people involved. Got the, you know, got the rest of society involved. Mm-hmm. And when you look back on it, you know, they might have helped the movement. And you know, not I intentionally. Totally Totally agree with you, Jamal. And I think he's helped his movement by not right. doing every interview that there is to be done. Right. Oprah, Absolutely. CNN, ABC, CBS, whatever it may be. He has let his actions speak for him. Right. And I really appreciate that about him, that his silence in some ways has been golden because right. it really has sort of uh, – uh, not let everyone else have anything else to chew on that he may have said to distract his message. Right. His, you know what I'm saying? Right. Which certainly would have happened. Right. Right. And there's nothing uh, he could do, gone. frankly. That's like with Smith and Carlos. I mean, we're talking about that 40, 50 something years later. Absolutely. And they really didn't say anything. I mean, sometimes you're, what you do, your gesture, a peaceful protest gesture, particularly in a country that's guilty, <laughs> they know. You don't have to say one thing that 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 you know, um, or you know that you know you kill. Let me ask you before we uh, before we let you go, um, two two things. Um, what was the, the the best interview? You know, one of the fun things about doing this reporting is great. You you really went through a lot of some of the greatest minds mm-hmm. in the game. Was there one interview that was that you you really wanted to get, and that it was just a really great interview, very illuminating. Mm-hmm. I mean, or they mm-hmm. all? Were they all? <laughs> I tell you, uh, Bill Jamal, the the interview that I uh, and there were a few. There were there really were because, as you said, there are some really great people, great thinkers in this book. But um, the interview that I uh, and and if you just read. Uh, Warren Moon's forward yeah, and Tony yeah. Dungy's afterward yeah. alone. I mean, those guys That's have right, some yeah. tremendous thoughts and tremendous things to say. But the, the interview that I, when I put the phone down after speaking with him, I had seen him at the Super Bowl and told him that I was, the year prior, and told him that I was writing this book and that I wanted to visit with him and wanted to really wanted to capture his story. And, and then once we actually did it, uh, I literally hung up the phone and I thought, well, I don't know if I've ever heard a story that meant so much to someone that happened 10 years ago, and he told it to me as if it just happened yesterday, and that was David Carr. Oh, wow. Really? 
David Carr in Houston and his experience there where everything that they did with the Texans was the his first time and the first time in the franchise. So here's a franchise, rookie franchise quarterback who's expansion team. Uh, and he's in a situation where uh, he's the face of the franchise, yet he has no idea what he's doing, and they have no idea what mm. they're doing. Mm. Right. Mm. And it led to a lot of different mistakes on both of their parts, including him being sacked 76 times or mm. something, a rookie record, just mm. hammered. Uh, and he talked about, you know, the um, the the excitement and also the regret, mm. you know, um, of the way he did some things and the way things were done and the highs and lows, mm. you know, uh, of all of that. Uh, he started, like, I think the first game as expansion franchise, they played Dallas. So you're mm. talking Texas, you know, mm. uh, big, uh, and they won. And they th- and they thought, wow, they're on the way. Right. And then the next week, Junior Seau sacks him, I think, five times, and he just gets <laughs> hammered, and they get destroyed. And he was like, wow, <laughs> you know. Again, Bob McNair said uh, the owner of the Texans told me a story about his story that I thought was fascinating, in that um, they let David sort of decide what David would do, mm. and so David would. It's, you know, uh, he's learned, Bob says, the quarterback has to be really the first one there and the last one to leave. But David would sort of come when everybody else came and would leave early and have tapes to take mm-hmm. home with him to see, even though he didn't really know what he was even looking at, you know, <laughs> per se. Right. But one of the things that Bob was talking about is the practice field was adjacent from the, uh, across the uh, a bridge from the locker rooms. And so everybody rode bikes or rode uh golf carts over to practice but David would ride over with his dad Hmm. who would watch practice and then ride back with his dad his dad would wait for him and then they'd leave together Hmm. Wow. now you know that may be fine in Pop Warner but that doesn't work on an NFL friend those kinds of things that the Texan that he experienced that he if he knew now but but somebody let him do it too but they let him do it nobody said it's got to stop and I'm assuming his brother didn't do that no, he's a, he that and that's what he's talked about is I've talk, taken him aside and I've gone step by step with everything. And then of course he later I think won the Super Bowl as a backup with uh, Eli Manning. That's right. That's and right. he was, that's right. and he was like, "Wow, I got behind Eli Manning and I thought, wow, if I had known the things I'm learning here now mm-hmm. about that, what a different experience there." And final thing that he told me about there mm-hmm. that I thought was really really amazing was they didn't have the offensive line to protect him. And so the coach Offense coordinator Chris Palmer, his offense was designed to throw the ball down the field, vertical game. The offensive line coach and others on the staff wanted a short check down passing game because we can't protect. So there was constant battling going on between your coordinator and the assistant coaches on the Mm. scheme. And it was ugly, Mm. he said. And here I was, a 22-year-old in the middle. (laughs) Right of these coaches battling over what I was supposed to do. All of that and him sharing all of that and again, just like it was yesterday. Yeah, that was great. That, his mind. I could, was really I could hear I could hear that. I said, man, those those yeah. are great interviews. Yeah. When you get it and, and when you hang up the phone, you're like, Wow, this was great. Yeah. You know, that that's 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 really great. And the show it comes through in this book. It co- what really comes through in the book is the fact that you've spent almost thirty years watching this covering this, the people talk to you, they respect you, 
and you get that type of depth of information, which is something you can't tell young journalists. And that, you know what? There's some stuff that you just are, are going to have to wait <laughs> 10 years to get. Nobody wants to hear that, you know, but sometimes it's just a matter of 10, 15, 20 years. And while you're trying to get to that, just have fun and learn. <laughs> but it, and, and, it's, and I think of that even with these young quarterbacks is that, okay, there's certain things, whether it's, whether it's um, you know, Deshaun or Wentz or Dak, you just know it. You know it. We're looking at it. It's great. You don't know what that bend in the road is going to be. Mm-hmm. Something's going to happen. That's right. And it's going to test. It's going to test. You know who you, whether you're going to be around for ten years. You know. So that's 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 the great thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last thing. You know, we're, uh, our guest is Thomas George, who's the SB Nation national columnist, author of a truly great book, Blitz: uh, Why NFL Teams Gamble on Starting Rookie Quarterbacks. Uh, this has nothing to do with this, by the way, but it does have to do with journalism. Uh, what, what's your um, you, you what, what's your um, philosophy on, on on your tweets, your personal tweets? And what made me think about that is when we read your columns, you know, you talk about a lot of different things, whether it's um, you know Colin Kaepernick issues, things like that. What's your philosophy on how you use tweets and 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 uh, is there a great difference in what you tweet and what you write? That's a great question. And uh, I think that uh, uh, journalists are still walking that landmine. You know, they're walking through that minefield trying to find out exactly uh, what's allowed and what isn't and what's proper and what isn't and, and all those kinds of things. Some are working at it harder than others. I see a lot of things out there that don't make sense to me in terms of the approach or the tone or the reasoning behind it. Um, I see its value, but I'm not a big fan of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I understand the role it plays, um, but uh, I think some of it is just truly self-serving, uh, what I see. Um, a lot of it doesn't really drive a lot of conversation, but it's sort of used as a look at me right. proposition. Um, and so uh, I I use it to try to amplify points of view. Um, I rarely, if ever, use it on anything personal. Uh, my family, my kids, so my wife. Uh, brothers, sisters, I see a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, and it's not that there's anything wrong with it. I just don't choose to do that. And uh, and even though it's been around a while, I don't think we've really figured out the best way right. to use it and, and what what was the best that can come from it. I think that's yet to be determined. Right. Oh, by the way, so I'm general. Jamarcus Russell, is he the biggest bust in the book? You'd almost like have his picture yeah. like in the dictionary. Biggest bust, but is he the biggest well, bust of all time? Well, it, it's a it's a it's one two, one one, one A. It's Jamarcus Russell, it's Ryan Leaf. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. The two of yeah. those have to be yeah. way up there at the top in terms of that term. And you know, I spent some time describing just that term bust and right. how if you're one of those guys, how that sticks with you throughout your life and how your post NFL career and how 
that name almost becomes your first name. It's like Bus Leaf <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, or yeah. Bus Russell. That's, that's your position. <laughs> you know, that's that? your position. <laughs> yeah, you know. You're, you're you were busting in And it's, it's, it's cruel and it's brutal, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, it's tough. You know, it really is a, a, a tough thing. Mm. Who, who would you put first, though? I know uh, it's a tie. I, I really would put Ryan Lee first. First. I would. There you have it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this our guest has been uh, the great Thomas George, SB Nation national columnist, a columnist, good friend of mine, good friend of the show, uh, and the author of really a great book, really a great book, uh, Blitzed, uh, Why NFL Teams Gamble on Starting Rookie Quarterbacks, uh, with a great forward, that really was a great forward by Warren Moon, and afterward written by Tony Dungy. I mean, you really got all the people. I mean, mm-hmm. these are people who are not making it up. They live <laughs> Right. So listen, man, thank, thanks so much for uh, being on our show. And buy the book. <laughs> Download it. Go to the store. Buy it. Buy two. We've got the Christmas season coming up. Thanksgiving, you know. Definitely. It, if you're a football fan, you gotta it's a great beat. And you want to know what the hell you're talking about. I mean, you That's know, true. Yeah. That's most important. Yeah. You want to know what you're talking about, read the book. Hey, Thomas, thanks so much. Man. Thank you, guys. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.